Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's reading is 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 7, 5. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We started a series a few weeks ago looking at the main cultural narratives of our culture, of our society, and we're asking ourselves, does it work? Do these work? Are they working for us? And we're asking, maybe, have we maybe bought into them too much? Now, some of you are like, Michael, why are you so suspicious? What's wrong with our culture's narratives? And um, I know you're all enlightened New Yorkers. I know that you all uh, are, are thoughtful individuals. So you know, you have to know, that 100 years ago, what people believe today, we laugh at them. And we look at people 200 years ago and we laugh at them. Heck, we even laugh at people 50 years ago. And that means we know that 100 years from now, people are going to look back at us and laugh at us. Which means just because our culture believes something and holds it as true doesn't mean it really is. Today we're going to look at the cultural narrative of sex and intimacy today. In fact, over half of those who attend church regularly do not believe in the Bible's view of sex. This is actually one of the things that is one of the main reasons why people leave the church. It's probably the least understood ethic in the Bible. People say, wait a second, I don't agree with this, so I guess I'm out. And the, the narrative is very defined. The narrative is, uh, you know, Bruce said, good luck when he, <laughs> up on stage because... He knows this is like one of the most contentious issues. When it comes to discipline in the church, it tends not to be, do not murder. I can't believe you murdered. It tends not to be that. 
it tends to be about this ethic. The narrative is very defined. It has its own heroes and villains. It goes like this. It goes like this. In the past, there was traditional religion, and traditional religion had all these rules and regulations about not having sex outside marriage and who you get to marry, and it was, because about, it was about control, and it was about keeping women down. But now, today, we are enlightened individuals because we now know through freedom and, and rights that individuals should be able to be in any kind of romantic relationship that they want as long as it's consensual. History is full of brave heroes and villains. The heroes are those who stand up to the tyranny of those who are trying to tell us what to do with our bodies. But we need to be able to do what we want with our sexual desires to be fully human. That's the narrative. And what makes it a powerful narrative, if you, if you examine it closely, is that there's actually no argument there. There's nothing for us to weigh. It's, these are assertions that culture just now accepts as, well, we all know that must be true. That's why it's a cultural narrative. And the counter story, the Christian counter story, comes across terribly. It looks very negative. It looks very regressive. The Bible's telling people what they can and can't do with their bodies. Don't we know this is just passe? Isn't this just something that we need to get over? And, and, and you know, the Bible's just behind the times. That's what I want to look at today. I want to do it in three parts. Let's first look at, let's ask, is there anything about sex and intimacy today that's broken? I just want to ask, like, is, is there anything that's broken about this narrative that I just said? Secondly, is there anything positive about the biblical narrative? We talked about how often it's viewed negatively, but it, is it positive? And then lastly, what might actually heal us? What will heal us? So first, we're going to look at, is there anything actually broken about our, our view of sex and intimacy? Is there anything positive about the biblical view? And then is, how do we get healed? So the first point. Is sex and intimacy broken? Look at our, our, at our text. This is 1 Corinthians. We've been going through 1 Corinthians to look at these narratives. And Paul is, again, talking to the Corinthian church. These are new Christians. These are people who are new at the faith. They don't know how to live. And they're asking a bunch of questions, which is good. And here in verse 1, this is in the middle of our text, in chapter 7, Paul says, let's discuss the matters you wrote about. Now for the matters you wrote about. And you need to know, if Paul was preaching to the choir, you know, it would be really easy for him. But he's not. He's preaching to the Corinthian church. And the context for the Corinthian church is a Greek view of the body. And to summarize that in a, in a phrase, the Greeks believed the body was bad and the spiritual world was good. There was a very hard divide. Anything physical, natural, was carnal. It was, it was just that. It was below. It was debased. And anything that was mind or thought or or ethereal, uh, is good and big. And what happens then is this understanding led to two opposite views when it came to the body. On the one hand, some folks just saw sex as an appetite. It was something to satisfy, something to, you know, do whenever you want with whomever you want, because it's just, it's just the body. Other people, the other view, look at verse 1. And this is in quotation. Sometimes people read this and they think Paul's saying this. But no, he says, hey, here's a quotation. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations. And this is actually the question they asked him. Because some folks believed that the thing that you should do is stay away from sex. Because the body is bad. It's just a physical vessel. It's primitive. And, and therefore, our goal is to transcend it. Our goal is to overcome it. 
to get past the body. And these two views, I would argue, are actually both the views that actually are inside our culture still. I want to look at both groups. First, the, 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 the secular view that we should not have sex or intimacy. If you've been studying the trends of Gen Z and Gen X and, and all the different generations, if you look at them, what a lot of people are, are talking about these days is that actually sexual relationships are, are plummeting. That people are not actually having sex. That people are, if you read the surveys, people are not wanting to get into relationships because they're getting hurt. They're too complicated. They're too expensive. There's, there, there, there's, there's too much power differential. Somebody always has the power in the relationship. And so what people are doing is they're opting out. The answer is stoicism. The answer is I'm not going to play the game on one hand. On the other hand, the one that's in the media more, the one that actually is in our stories, the one that's around us, the predominant view is that sex is just an appetite. That, that sex is just something to consume. It's just the body. What? No big deal. It's like food. And yet Paul then, why, why does he say in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality? Why does he have, clearly he has an idea that sexual immorality harms the body. Which is unlike what our culture says. Our, our culture says sex outside marriage does not harm the body. So why does Paul say it does? And I think he says it does because he would go all the way back to Genesis 1 and see in creation in the way humans were made and says actually there it says the two shall become one flesh. And what he, he knows is that's not just talking about physical one fleshness. For Paul, he would say... You should not be naked physically if you're not prepared to be naked spiritually, mentally, emotionally, financially, legally, in every single way. In fact, he would actually say it's dishonest and harming. When you give yourself and your body physically, but not in other ways, what you're essentially saying is I'm not going to share the whole, my whole self with you. I'll, I'll share this part, but not this part. And it does violence to us. It destroys the possibility to treat each other with full dignity. The reason why we do the passing of the peace that we just did, where we try to look at each other and say, I see you and I know you, that's good. But if you're going to be in these intimate relationships, there needs to be the full equality of the individual, which means sharing not just on one level, but on every level. It means being able to say that I see your physical wobbly bits, but I also want to see your emotional and spiritual and financial wobbly bits as well. Helen Fisher, a biological anthropologist, says the same thing in her book, Why We Love. She says there's actually no such thing as, ca as, as sexual, um, casual sex. She actually like, looks at the brain and what happens, and she says in sex, what's happening is, is dopamine is being dumped, and oxytocin, and all these neurochemicals are flooding the brain to actually impact you, imprint you, so that you actually desire to be with your partner. To, to attach you to your partner. In other words, she says, literally, we're designed to be together. And so when we don't, when we just kind of get in and out of these things, because we want to hold on to our independence, she says, that breaks us. And maybe it's one of the contributing factors to the loneliness. It's one of the factors to depression. See, I actually agree with our cultural assumption, which is this. Everybody wants to love and be loved. I completely agree. But when relationships are temp temporal and transactional, you actually can't have real love. 
Because real love takes commitment through thick and thin to stay, to be committed, to be there. And you can't do that in a non-committal culture, which is what we want. We want to kind of have our cake and eat it too. We want to be able to to say non-committal, hey, I'm in and out, see you later. But I want to feel loved and cared for. You can't. Where have we, therefore, unknowingly, potentially assumed this is how we should relate to each other? See, I don't think we've done the processing. We just, this is just kind of come into our brains and we said this is the way to treat each other. And then we wonder, why are we feeling so lonely? Where have we uncritically acted out this narrative? See, I don't think it's just in physically in hookup culture. I think married, single people, everybody, when we treat each other just as physical beings and not as the eternal ones that the Bible says that we are, I think we do violence to each other. I think we're doing this when we walk into a room and we prioritize people based on how they look. I think we do this when we actually sort people and we only want to really relate to one people group and not the other people group. Because of how we see them physically. We've chosen violence in those, mo- in those moments. See, modern culture says this. The greatest good is this. To get to do what you want, where you want, with whomever you want, wherever you want, with your body. It sounds great. Sounds like freedom, right? And Paul just respect, says respectfully, sorry, that's, that, that's, not, that's not true. That actually uses people. There's a usury about it. And that's why some people are opting out. Other people are opting in. And then there's all these power struggles and these issues and this abuse. I would argue that's what's broken. And I'm happy if you want to text in questions afterwards to talk about it more. But I, I, I think it's clear. I think society's seen it. And yet we don't know what to do about it. So that's number one. All right. Number two. Okay, then what is positive about the biblical sexual ethic? Because it looked kind of negative, right? The, the, the Christian view is always saying, no, no, no. So what's positive? Well, I think there's two main positive view, views. One is mutuality and consent, and two is what I'll call real love. Mutuality and consent and real love. First one, mutuality and consent. Look at verses 3 through 5 here. There's all this stuff you just sort of, break, you know, Paul's saying here's what a husband and wife should do. But what you need to see and it's almost impossible to undersell this, is that you will find no other reference in any ancient text anywhere that references that a husband is supposed to surrender his body to his wife. Almost always, 99% of the time, it's going to say only the wife to the husband, but not here. It's the exact same phrase, which is Paul's way of, of equating and saying there needs to be a mutuality here. And then if you go to verse 5, it says mutual consent. This, this idea that actually it needs to be mutually consensual. Our culture, one of the highest values in our culture, is it has to you know, do whatever you want as long as it's consensual. But where does that come from? Where does that idea come from? It doesn't come from nowhere. No idea comes from nowhere. It doesn't come from evolution. Because what does evolution say? Evolution says, hey, the strong eat the weak. That's how you get here. That's not mutuality. That's actually how a lot of things go on today, right? Power. Whoever has power is over the other one. No. You're not going to find it in any other religion. You're not going to find it in the Eastern religions that say there is no thing known as humanity. You're not going to find it in Aristotle or Plato where there is definitely power divides and one over the other. It comes from here. It comes directly from Christianity. It says it's this text. And yet notice, go to verse 2, notice the only place that Paul thinks that you can do mutuality and consent is inside the paradigm of marriage. Why? Because of this. 
If you go into a relationship and say this, I'm here to get my needs met physically. Or I've actually seen, I've seen people talk this way. Hey, you're feeling kind of down. You need to get in a relationship. Why? I need to get my needs met emotionally. I need to start feeling better about myself. I need to go on out and, and find people to like me. Then, I, then I'll feel liked. Then I'll know that I'm loved. Then I'll feel better about myself. See, if you go into relationships for that, what's happening there? That's me-centered. It's so ironic. You get in a relationship for, with somebody else, and yet really you're in a relationship for yourself. There's no way not to be about usury. By the way, you can act in marriage this way too, can't you? This is why a lot of marriages break down, because people are inside marriage are still trying to use each other. I'm here for my personal fulfillment. I'm here for my joy. And yet the Christian sexual ethic, biblical marriage is not that. What was radical then, and I think it's radical today, is the biblical sexual ethic is the idea of a permanent, lifelong, self-giving relationship where you're prioritizing the other person. Where you're saying, hey, the older you get, the more wobbly bits that you're going to have on your body, that's okay. It's safe here. Why? Because I'm still in it and you're still in it too. It's safe because you're going to be accepted no matter what. And when you're in that safety, then you can say, I, I am completely and utterly with you forever. And it's in that space that you can be vulnerable. It's in that space that you can have intimacy. You can only be vulnerable if you know they're not going to leave. You can only be fully intimate. This is why people get in relationships and they want to like reveal things and you're like, well, you can leave any moment, so why am I going to reveal myself if you're going to leave? Because you're going to take that, you're going to take that, and I'm never going to be able to get it back. You can only have true intimacy when each of you can say to the other person, I see everything about you. I see the good parts, I see the bad parts, and I'm going to stay. And that lets you be more vulnerable, lets you be more open, lets you be fully naked, not just physically, but mentally, spiritually, emotionally, all these other ways. See, I would say sex and intimacy outside of marriage, you're naked, but you're not fully accepted. Inside biblical marriage, you can be fully accepted, and that allows you to be naked, not just physically, but in all these facets. Mind, body, and soul. All right, so that's mutuality. Secondly... At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Love. Right? Our culture sees refraining from sex until marriage as like, you know, a man and a woman is not positive. But how can it be positive? Professor Kyle Harper says in his book on Roman antiquity, he says this. He says, Paul's letter, this letter shows us that Christian sexual morality adapted the gospel searing ethic of radical love to the realities of life. I was walking down uh, the street the other day and... Um, Somebody uh, was not doing well. They, they were, I think they were, there was some mental illness or health issues, and I was trying to interact with them, and he asked me who I was, and I said I was a minister, and he went laser-focused and said, who is God? And I said, God is love. 1 John four sixteen. He immediately calmed down. Because it's true. People love that. Our culture loves the idea God is love. 
What people don't realize, though, is that the application of God is love in the gospel is actually what Paul's doing here to a culture that says that sex is just about power and, and we've seen people that have power have power over other people and the people who are good looking have more power than the people not good looking and some people have it and some people don't. This is why somebody always, uh, because they have, somebody always has power, we opt out of that. Paul is saying that, that, that the biblical sexual ethic is not that. Paul is saying that you don't understand that Paul keeping sex inside of marriage between a man and a woman is actually an extension of God is love. You say, how is that possible? Because Christianity is saying this. God gave himself in the person of Jesus to you. In an exclusive, lifelong union. Sound familiar? Therefore, sex is not just physical. Why? Because you're not physical. Therefore, it's not about getting, it's about giving. It's not about being served, but about serving. Why? Because that's exactly the paradigm of reality where God does that first to us. And so this is, I would argue, this is the application of the gospel to your body. That everybody in this room, you deserve love. You deserve respect and dignity and honor and commitment. And it's precisely what you get in the person of Jesus. Where you see the God of the universe do that for you. And because of that, Christians... That back then began to live in a radically different way than the rest of the culture. Where they lived in relationships like this. And culture started seeing, wait a second, actually, this brings more dignity because people aren't being used. Culture started saying, wait a second, this brings more mutuality, this brings more consent, more respect. That usury of the body went down and dignity went up. The Christian view is overwhelmingly positive because it gives values of mutuality and consent where nobody else can get it. See, our culture still likes that concept, but since it comes from nowhere, they don't know where it comes from, it can't be rooted. There's no foundation to it, which is why nobody, not everybody does it. And you're demanding it from each other, and yet nobody's able to give it because you don't know where it comes from. And yet it also shows us that real intimacy and values of mutuality and consent where nobody else does it. It shows real connection and care ultimately can only fully come in a consensual, lifelong, covenantal relationship that God does to you first, which is why you can even potentially do it in a self-giving marriage. I think there's, some, there's nothing more positive, there's nothing more beautiful than that. Now, last point then. What's going to heal us? Right, this doesn't solve the problem, does it? Right, everybody still wants to be loved, everybody still wants love, and yet I think I've made an argument for why the cultural narrative that we're living can't give it to us because ultimately we use people. And so the question is, what will heal us? And by the way, just be careful. Paul wasn't just talking to single people. When he's talking to the church in Corinth, they were married people. Why? Because married people do the same thing. There's sexual immorality in marriages as we use each other. We, why? We use each other for, to feel better about ourselves, to get something out of it. Same problem. What will keep us into a space of self-giving, other-prioritizing relationships. Paul has an answer. It's in verse 19. He says, remember. He says what? Remember what? That you are not your own. Today's culture says the opposite, right? Our culture says what? You are your own. You're on your own. You're by yourself. You have to do it all on your own. 
It's all up to you. See, the world says this. You're as attractive as the world says you are. You're as desirable as the world says that you are. And yet Alan Noble in his book, You're Not Your Own, makes a compelling argument that the unique nature of a Christian identity is that your identity is not centered primarily on your marital status, whether you're single or married. It's not primarily on your social status or your look status or your accomplishment status, but on Christ. See, look at verse 20. It says that you were bought at a price. That's being bought out of slavery. Paul wants you to, he's using this imagery because he wants us to reflect on what did it take for the God of the universe to buy us out of slavery? And the answer is what Jesus did on the cross. You know what Jesus' last words were on the cross? It is finished. It's not actually three words. It's actually one word. To tell us die. And a lot of times for us in English, it sounds passive. You know, it is finished. As if Jesus is like Captain Obvious. Like he's on the cross. I'm about to die. It's finished. No. To tell us die is actually a compound word. The first part is actually comes from the root word of teleos, which means um, reality. It means... Uh, design or plan. And yet the word was almost always used about a final payment of a very big purchase. To tell us die, I did it. It's done. It's paid for. That's what Jesus is saying. I paid for it. I paid for what was planned. And it's done. Now some of you are like, hey, I've been coming to Redeemer Lincoln Square for a while, and this is, Michael, you always do this. You get to the end of the sermon, and you say, see, Jesus died for you in some sort of ambiguous way. But there's nothing ambiguous about this. It's not ambiguous because, look, he took every single consumeristic way that you and I deal with each other when we enter into relationships just to get something out of somebody else. He took every single time that we treat people as just physical, just temporal, not the eternal, beautiful, lovely, marred and broken, and yet wondrous and amazed individuals that we really are. When we treat people just as physical, we do harm to them. And yet he took that. Every time you unknowingly prioritize yourself and you hurt others, every time that you unknowingly care for yourself over others, Jesus took that and said, I paid for that. That's nothing ambiguous about that. He was nailed to the cross for those things that you don't even think are that big of a deal, but actually they've been harming us and it's been leading to the brokenness and the hurt and the loneliness and the sadness in our culture. And so if you want to summarize Christianity into one word, it's this word, to telestai. It is finished. It's completely opposite to every other word of how people think. A pastor told me long ago, he said, actually, if you think about Buddha, Buddha's last words was to strive unceasingly. And Jesus says, don't you dare. That's not this. It is finished. All other religion, every other culture, our culture says this, try hard, be good, and then maybe you'll get intimacy. Maybe find the right person. Maybe if you just, the, the stars align, fate works out, then you'll get the love that you always want. Which will, by the way, never come. Because if you're looking for it, if you're asking for it, if you're desiring it, you'll crush the other person for it. Or they'll crush you. And yet what, what we see here is Jesus says, you get that love and the commitment from me. You can have it now. You can receive it now. And when you receive it, and when you believe it, when you don't just believe in your head, but actually you experience it in your bones, 
this worth and the significance that I really desire for you all to get today. The value of his love and desire for you. That, when it becomes a reality, it reprograms every single one of our choices and actions. It changes how we like, look at everything. It's not just who we marry, but how we spend our money, our time, our talent, how we see our career, our purpose, our meaning, how we view, if you're in a marriage, how you view each other. If you're not in a marriage, how you view what it means to be not in a marriage. There's a classic children's book called The Runaway Bunny. And in this book, there's this little bunny who wants to run away from his mom. And so he says, I'm running away. And his mother says, hey, if you run away, I will run after you because you're my little bunny. And he says, nah, not if, I, not if I'm a rock, you can't get me. She says, well, if, you turn, if you're a rock, then I will become a mountain climber, and I will find every single rock until I find you. He goes, well, no, not if I'm a, a flower. You won't be able to find me. There's too many flowers. She goes, nope, then I'll become a gardener, and I'll look at every single flower until I find you. And this bunny goes through all these different ones until finally he realizes that no matter what he does, his mother's going to pursue him. That's the love that we really want, isn't it? We want it to be pursued. We want to be tracked after, even if we run away. And I think that's what we find in the person of Jesus. You are not your own, friends. You were bought and brought back, even if you're running away, even if you don't know what's good for yourself. At the end of the book, the bunny realizes that the light of the mother is far better than anything that he could be turned into or any other place that he could be. And I guess I'm asking myself, I'm asking for you, will we realize the delight that we have in the Father? Will it be a shock into our system to humble us, to to break up the hardness, the hurt, right? The self-protection, which is natural in a lifetime of people taking and taking and taking. How can you be self-giving if people are always taking from you? Because you feel the love and the care and the giving from him first. Will we realize that this love means we don't ultimately need anyone else's love? To end, let me just end with three super fast applications. Number one, if you've been single for a very long time, you might be wondering, how does this apply to you? Right? If you feel like you've given up hope, how does this apply to you? I would say that this applies because Paul is saying you don't need marriage and intimacy to have the intimacy and love and care that really is found in marriage, but you can actually find it in the person of Jesus. Paul believed this so much, he was never married. Jesus was never married. That should give you, should give us great hope that ultimately the self-givingness of Jesus is deep and wide enough to satisfy us. And when we're not, and we're, by the way, we're going to have ups and downs, I get it. That's okay, you're fully human. But ultimately, you will be able to see and find what we have in him. Number two, if this is true, please be careful. Be careful who you, who you marry. Who, it's possible that the person you're with has a modern view of love, and therefore love is self-fulfillment. I'm going to be in and out of it based on what I'm getting, and then you'll get dropped. Or worse, you don't. You get into a marriage, but then you're not actually, you're not equally married. Maybe physically you can be naked, but you can't be naked spiritually and emotionally because you don't agree on the essence of of, and purpose of reality, what you should do with your money and your, and your Sundays and, and um, how you treat other people and who you hang out with. If you think you're lonely now, imagine what lonely, how lonely you, could, you will be when you're actually in this relationship that you're, actually, that you're completely and, 
and utterly different on the big things of life. It is more important to put yourselves in relationships with other people, non-marriage people, that you actually agree with on these issues because you're going to find more intimacy and love there than you will even in a marriage without that. Lastly, thirdly, please see the beauty here. It's hard, for, it's hard as a pastor because so often the Christian view has such a, ne- people think there's such a negative aspect of it. But this is why I keep wanting to come back to you. If Jesus is who he says he is, and you place him, place him at the center of your heart, and you see that he died for you, then you're going to die for other people. There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more consensual and mutual and self-giving than that. See, I think our culture wants to create a culture with no harm. Right? Who doesn't want no harm? But the best way to do that is not to live out the cultural view of sex and intimacy, which is, about, which is self-focused. Instead, the core of Christianity is a man dying for people who don't love him and don't care for him. And if you put that man at the core of who you are, you will die for people who don't love you and don't care for you. That's going to lead to less harm in the world than anything else that I know of. How about diversity, right? Our culture loves diversity, racial diversity, biosphere diversity, right? We want to save all different species. Well, Christianity says that God made humans in his image. Well, who is, Jesus? Who is God? God is three persons, Trinitarian. It's perfect unity in perfect diversity. You have distinct individuals that are different but equal. You get the same thing in intergendered relationships where you have male, female, different. They bring something different to the table. And yet when you bring God into that relationship too, you have a new trinity that's formed. Unity and diversity at the same time. There's something beautiful about that. Let's see that beauty. How we can actually have that. I know it's so difficult. How do you actually have equality and yet difference? How do you have unity and diversity? You get that in the Trinity, and in these relationships. The early Christians were able to live out non-exploitive, mutual loving relationships, both single and married. And I guess I want to ask ourselves, will we? Because when they did it, it changed the world, but will we? And I think we could. If the center of reality is Jesus looking at all of our wiggly, wobbly parts, not just physical, but emotional and spiritual, and he said, I see all that bad stuff, and I'm going to be committed to you anyway. And we feel fully known and fully accepted at the same time. That power, that transformation lets us do it to each other. Right? We're dividing out culturally. We don't, uh, uh, you don't do that. I don't like that. Okay, you're done. This allows us to stay present with the brokenness. Fused in this love and mutuality. I think our culture's view is too incomplete. But in Jesus, we get the love that we always wanted. And it makes us the people who love others. Let me end with... This old song, this old song says this, My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold. I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Please wash me anew in the wine of your blood. What's our hope for our hard hearts and cold prayers? It's the mutual, radical Self-giving love of Jesus. Nothing else compares. Let's take and drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a hard issue. It's a hard issue because it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. It seems 
Like our cultural narrative makes more sense. It's so simple. It's not even an argument. It's an assertion. And yet when we start looking at it, we start seeing the cracks and the crevices inside of it. There's a lot of truth, Father. There's truth in it. People want to be loved and they want to love. And yet it doesn't hold because we can't actually have that in non-committal, transitional, just physical relationships. Help us to see the deeper beauty that is being found, that the, that, that the biblical ethic is deeper and richer than we thought it was, more beautiful. Father, if we, if we haven't lived this out, take away our shame. Help us to see, Father, that you, there's unconditional grace and love and even that hardship and hurt that maybe we've gone through, maybe we've felt it ourselves, hopefully t- takes us home to you to see what's really solved in you. Father, if we're in hard marriages and, and, and we're in these spaces, help us to see anew the, re- the key relation you have with us that we can base ourselves off of, Father, to be this radical self-giving community in this, in this town, now and forevermore. We praise things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.